Hello and welcome to Housewives and Me, a podcast about why we love the real housewives. I'm your host, Connor Bean, and thank you so much for joining me for another brand new episode. I hope you're doing well. I know we're now into July. We're halfway through summer. I don't know, maybe you're having a hot girl summer, maybe you're not. Whatever you're doing, I hope it's treating you well. And thank you for all your support on the show so far. I'm very excited about this week's guest. It's Joan Summers, who's a writer for Jezebel and one of the co-hosts of the podcast, Eating for Free. Um, We got into so much in this interview, and you've probably noticed from the runtime, this is a bit longer than recent episodes of of the show have been. I'm trying to keep them shorter so that I don't have to spend as long editing them, because that is a big job. But this interview had so much interesting stuff I wanted to keep in about fashion some of the funniest run-ins with Real Housewives we've had discussed on the show so far some really interesting chat about OC and all that stuff by the way this interview happened a few weeks ago and it happened just before all the big OC cast reshuffling that's happened and some of the stuff that's gone down on New York and Beverly Hills since so I do think maybe it might seem oh we don't reference certain things it's because they literally had not happened (laughs) (laughs) Uh, when we were having our conversation. That's something to bear in mind with the show. I do record the interviews a little bit ahead of putting them out. So sometimes certain details do change. So maybe I should let you know that more often. I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to talk too much because I want you to get straight into this amazing interview. So let's get into it. Here is Joan Summers on Housewives and Me. My guest today is a staff writer at Jezebel where she covers fashion, pop culture and everything in between, including The Real Housewives. And she is the co-host of the popular podcast Eating for Free. Joan Summers, welcome to Housewives and Me. Hi, it's so good to be here. So let's get into it. You cover Housewives a lot for Jezebel. You kind of get into all the cities, but how did you as a viewer get into Housewives? So um, this is actually interesting because I think as someone who covers it so much, it's just kind of implicit that she's always been watching and I never get asked how. So um, I was raised in a pretty conservative Christian environment. I mean, I'm from like a small town in central California and, you know, there's not like a lot of glamour and rich people. I mean, I don't think I met a rich person until I moved to the city. Like it was just that kind of atmosphere. And so I, um, at home, you know, these were the Bush years when Real Housewives of Orange County came on and all the programming was about like family values and like good Christian women. And so it was on Bravo one day and my mom had read a blurb about it. I think in like the local paper and she's like there's this new show that's on and it's about you know just like christian women raising their children and she (laughs) turned it on and it was the real housewives of orange county and while everyone else in my house like just kind of i think we we were one of those families where like you know we definitely tv was our only socialization with each other like when the tv was on that was the only time we were all together and so we just like watched whatever i mean we watched tlc everything on that we watched everything on like vh1 mtv and you know looking back it's kind of shocking some of the things my parents like sat through with me but like you know hoarders and intervention and stuff but it was just like whatever the channel flips to today that's what we're going to be watching while we eat dinner and then we're all going to go to our rooms and not speak to each other and so it was the real housewives of orange county and i was like instantly hooked because you have like vicky gunvalson in her huge mansion that she's bragging about the insurance money got her and you know at this point i was already out and so i think i had kind of that 
predilection for gay camp. And that first season I really do think of as like camp excellence because it is truly these like insulated women in this gated community, just of this pressure cooker of like fame, not fame, but wealth and whiteness. And Mm -hmm. just like, to me, it was so intriguing. I was like, I want to know everything about these people. And so as the season went on, you know, it starts to get into drama, like Joe gets introduced and my parents started to have like less of a taste for it because out of all the things they watched, like, they only wanted to watch things that was either wholesome or had a good message at the end of the day, which is, I think, like, even though I kind of questioned their decision to watch Hoarders and, like, Intervention with us when we were, like, literal children. I'm also like, oh, I think it was because it was, like, the message is, look, people can be helped. But when things got too catty, they were like, I don't want to watch this anymore. So they turned mm. it off. Like, by the end of the first season, there was no interest in it whatsoever. And then... We had at that point, I think TiVo. And so I just started TiVoing it on my own and I would delete it before my mom got home from work. And I would just watch that. Like that was like my own private little retreat after middle school and then high school. Actually, let me think it was 2005. So I was, oh no, wait, no, I was in middle school. I was like, how old was I in 2005? I was 10. (laughs) 10. So like you can imagine the training for my eventual housewives <laughs> literally started at birth. Like I have been watching these people as long as I can form a sentence. And then of course it just kind of spawned off. And then by that point, I think it was like by 2010, there was a lot of spinoffs and I had a computer and I could stream and torrent back in the days of RIP mega upload. Um, oh, yeah. And that's just what I did. Code. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's also how I watch like Drag Race and a lot of like this TV that we now see as like seminal gay classics. I discovered on my laptop in like 2009 after school. And um, yeah, it just has been a lifelong obsession ever since. And it is only until very recently have I been able to monetize that um, <laughs> particular personality flaw. I love that you call it a personality flaw. I'm like, yeah, it is a flaw. (laughs) I'm like, even I'm like, yeah, it's a flaw. So you like you started early with OC as in you were on the ground level with that city. Ground level. When when did the other shows come into the picture for you? And like, how did you feel about them? Because I'd imagine in a way you're probably kind of attached to OC already. Yeah, no. So, you know, I kind of I the thing with OC that has been, I think, the reason I've watched it for like 15 years now is because the women, they reminded me of the women I grew up around and the women in my family, but like worse versions of them, like those people, if we had everything the American dream promised people, like from small towns, like you could go out, start a business, strike it rich, and then you get to live behind a gated community too um, and get on a reality TV show. But I think that was one thing that drew me to Orange County. Although obviously I was pretty like logged on from an early age, also due in part to how young I am. And so I kind of didn't like them. It was more like, I'm fascinated by this, but I know these are bad people. And then I think the rest of the shows just kind of came as they aired, you know? Atlanta was like an instant success and New York was like, I saw the very first season of New York and you have Jill Zarin and Luann and Bethany and Ramona and all of it. I was like, at that point thinking, maybe someday I'll get to go to New York and live the New York lifestyle. And it just felt like a revelation to me. And those women, I mean, those women on New York, I don't know what was in the water at that point or what (laughs) stuff those casting directors were on, but it was genius casting. I mean, right? Like the people that they got for that season and the effects that they've had on reality TV since, it's just like, 
undeniable that you watch that, I guess, in real time for me and not just instantly be like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. I want to live my whole life with these women and then die with them, right? Like, I joke <laughs> that I will watch Luann De La Seps on television for the rest of my life. Like, she can just exist somewhere in frame and I'll be living because I just want to watch her live in the world. I mean, all of those women. And so I think that that was really what it was for me is it was like a sense of escapism because, you know, I at that point had no frame of reference for what the real world was really like being from this small town. And so I was like, just watching these TV shows. And it was like a getaway, a destination vacation. Like I was like, oh, (laughs) this is what it's really like in New York. And it's since I, you know, I've realized that it's like that in New York for some people, not for everybody, not for most people, I think. But uh, yeah, I think it was definitely like that blend of like campy humor and like glamour and fashion, but also in a form of escapism for like someone who was like really disconnected from culture and the rest of the world. You wrote a really interesting piece for Jezebel recently about kind of, I guess, the first four or five seasons of Orange County and kind of that early era of Housewives in general and like... It's, I actually didn't realize reading the piece how much you had watched the show as a kid as well. So what did you learn going back to rewatch and seeing the Housewives through 2021 eyes in terms of those early seasons? And did it match maybe the nostalgia you had for it from your, like, I guess, childhood years as well? You know, I will say that it didn't hold up in terms of engagement. Like now I think I have been drip fed real drama and real Mm -hmm. like production and editing because of later seasons. And so going back to like this very bare bones piece of reality television filmmaking is like kind of stark because everything you recognize about the housewives now and expect from them isn't present, right? Like they don't have necessarily, like I wouldn't say there's any confessional looks and the confessionals are treated very much like, confessionals that you might have seen on like the real world and more like MTV VH1 programming. Like it's not something that you now feels like a staple and also like a branding of the housewives, right? Like the confessionals are one of the things you look forward to because it's going to turn out fashion, turn out quitty one-liners, quippy one-liners. There we go. Is that a word quippy or witty? I don't know what I was trying to quippy. say there. Well, like, yeah, quippy, yeah. yeah. Quibi, <laughs> yeah. R.I.P. Quibi. We hardly knew. R.I.P. A lot of housewives <laughs> died with Quibi. I feel like. I feel like that was like they were all like, "We're gonna get stuff on that." But anyway, so, um, so yeah, going back, it was really stark, and I don't think it lived up necessarily to what I first imprinted on it as a kid. But mm. one thing that was more familiar, and I get into this in the piece, is that. It was really interesting because as someone who like lived through, cause the recession obviously affected everyone everywhere. And it's not like a unique experience, but in California, Orange County was really the nexus of a lot of the housing market crash too, and mm-hmm. bad loans and um, the short sale crisis and just a lot of really bad stuff. And so I lived through that in central California because all around us, they were bringing up these tract homes that were, empty and you're like who's gonna live in this home right and like I suddenly had friends whose parents were like driving escalades and I was like your mom is a nurse and your dad works as like a car mechanic why are you driving an escalade and then it all crashed and all those things went away and my parents both lost their jobs and you know it was really hard for a time and so going back and watching that 
brewing in the early season, like this paradise right before the fall, and then just like total ruin by like season five was really familiar to me. Like it felt like I was watching like a fragment of my own history. Now, obviously I, you know, we didn't have much to lose. Like my parents didn't have a lot to their name at that point anyways. So it wasn't like as great of a fall, but it did feel very familiar. And it made me really start to think as I get into in the piece about how much the American dream has changed alongside the housewives, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the beginning, it was like, you know, you're going to have a family, 2.5 kids, dad's going to work out. Like, I'm going to say, I think I used IBM as an example, but like one of those very stereotypical corporate jobs and mom is going to stay home and do the homemaking. And this is specifically the American dream for like white families in America, middle-class white families. And then through the housewives and this renaissance of women on TV, specifically like upper middle class to rich women, um, you start to see this slow transformation into, okay, what if fame is our second life? What if fame is the American dream? What if Mm. instead of going and doing our office corporate job, we can, you know, rent a big house in San Bernardino and get on a reality TV show. And it was just, it it opened this door for this like new style of celebrity that we're so just used to these days. Like it's just second nature to log into Instagram and see some like random blonde white woman with expensive clothes and like a nondescript setting. And you're like, ah, yeah, that's her job. She's an influencer. But the Real Housewives of Orange County was really at the forefront of that. And so that was most fascinating to me, I think, kind of seeing the early years of that development, because in 2000, what, nine by that time 2008 like no one knew what an influencer was like people probably if you said influencer people probably would have taken the word literally and really now like those women and the real housewives are like the proto influencers you know they were on tv often hawking products for bravo or you know lifestyles and on instagram the fit tea sponsorships so that i think was like something i definitely as you see in the piece focused most on and did you notice a contrast that like You've gone back and rewatched the early days of the first show and in the last like less than a year we've had The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City and I'm curious like what the contrast is between like early early Housewives versus like brand new iterations that are like they come in so hot versus you know you know with early Housewives seasons they didn't even really know the format until like two or three seasons in. Yeah I think I mean I think if you're on like the worst places of the Real Housewives fandom as it has sprawled across the internet like Reddit or on Facebook like Mm -hmm. you definitely see a lot of people who are like OG listeners kind of deriding newer generations because you know you look at them and you're like oh you already know the playbook for real housewives right like you're just a person plugging into a format rather than like what early seasons of new york and orange county and especially atlanta like i think atlanta really was the breakout star for bravo in terms of like these are women whose lifestyle you have no idea about and who previously until this point lived in this entire ecosystem that was totally foreign to you and does not affect your life whatsoever but it is like for women in that area the most important thing and i think in a lot of ways like potomac to me feels similar in sense of like they really found people from like an out of the way place. Now, New York, of course, is not out of the way by any means, but like most people are never going to meet one of the women that live in those like lofty penthouses on the Upper East Side and have vacation homes in the Hamptons and in Italy and are trying traveling all over the world, right? So like there was still that sense of discovery. And yeah. I think that was 
really something that the creator focused on in Orange County was he said he was at a party in Coto de Casa, which is now famous for being the setting for a lot of the Real Housewives of Orange County. And he mm-hmm. was listening to these women like, you know, brag about their boat purchases and like complain about trying to get kids into private schools. And he was like, most people don't live like this. I think people would be really interested to see how these people live. And now, you know, I watch Salt Lake City and of course it has the Mormon angle and, you know, the church is in the background of a lot of the shots, but you Mm -hmm. see those women. And while I do love The Real Housewives of Orange County, I think I called that first episode like one of the best premiere episodes in all of Housewives canon. You kind of watch them and you're like, oh, you know the playbook, right? Like, obviously you're from this area that most people are not from and this lifestyle that is still so secretive in American culture. Um, And there was a lot of that, I think, present, which helped. But there are also moments where you're like, I can see you producing yourself. Like, you are a first season housewife with a glam squad. I wonder why. Like, you know, I think especially Hmm. Jen Shaw, this is most present in, right? Which is ironic because she is now being unmasked as this alleged evil mastermind of a fraudulent telephone marketing scam. Um, But you watch her and you're like, why do you have a glam squad other than the fact that you are anticipating being famous because of this reality TV show? And that mm-hmm. curtain has kind of gone away a lot of the times. Like you watch those early seasons and it's like these women don't think they're going to be on TV. Like the things that they say and the kinds of places of their lives that they would once allow us into that they are much smarter than to allow us into now. Um, you're just kind of like, yeah, I don't think you guys expected you were going to be on TV or anybody was going to watch this show. You know, as we're chatting, Beverly Hills and New York are kind of airing back to back. And I I think Atlanta is still the highest rated show. And Jersey has had a very good run in terms of, I think, a return to form and the viewership is very good. But I do feel like Beverly Hills and New York are kind of two pillars of Housewives world. I mean, how do you find watching the show, like having those two shows on at the same time, as the kind of at the moment as we're talking the only two shows on like what do you think of the current season and being able to almost compare and contrast because they're sort of doing similar things but they're also having very different experiences as well you know i think before answering this like specifically it's important to note also that like i really do think this is a reckoning for the real housewives like anyone watching it currently and it's shocking to me how many people seem to watch it in quarantine versus how many people in my everyday life seem to keep up current like i'll ask my friends about and they're like oh i haven't seen this season i'm like you haven't seen this season of real housewives of new york city right like to me who watches all of it but (laughs) you know you've seen andy talk about how orange county has gone on permanent hiatus because they need to figure out what they're going to do with that show. And Atlanta, mm-hmm. once the star of Bravo's arsenal, has really felt its star tarnished recently. I mean, this recent season, I don't think I've ever seen more blowback on Bravo short of like Leanne Luckin or, you know, Gretchen and Tamara um, mm-hmm. than, than this last season. It really felt like universally people were like, this is a bad product, Bravo, and these women are stars, but they are not exhibiting that stardom. And so I think Bev- like going into these seasons of Beverly Hills in New York, you can feel this pressure building behind the scenes that like, this is like their time to prove that the housewives are still relevant, that they still yeah. have stuff left in them. And so on one hand, I want to give 
the editors and producers credit for still like wrangling a storyline out of the most vapid women in the world, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Um, after all of these oh. years, when they have mined every single tear yeah. they have shed about Birkin bags, like there's still something in there, largely due in fact to this legal scandal that Erica Jane is going through. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to point out that like, yeah, it feels like there has a lot of pressure building up to these seasons. Like, okay, we have one last shot to prove to people why they should still be watching those shows. And so I do feel like these seasons are firing on all cylinders. Like, You have Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which is, I think, one of the most anticipated television events in the last couple of years in terms of what's Erica going to say? What Mm -hmm. did they get? What are the like legal ramifications for her involvement? You have investigators in the case that's ongoing looking through all of the unedited footage. People have literally come into her home and repossessed her property. Like, (laughs) are they going to get this? Army Hammer. Army Hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, are they going to get this on camera? Like, is she going to access all of this personal detail for the camera? And she's promised that, right? Like she said, I'm going to say everything. It's no holds barred this season. But I think that definitely has helped, right? Because if you take Erica Jane out of the equation on Beverly Hills, you have Garcelle and um, Lisa Rinna, and then you have Sutton and Crystal. And those are really the only two plot points that are driving the story forward short of Erica Mm -hmm. Jane. And while I think those are both um, really good plot lines, I wouldn't say easy to watch or necessarily things Crystal and Garcelle should have lived through. It is in a way engaging, But if you take out Erica and like, would they have been able to survive if viewers really honed in on the way that Crystal is being treated in her first season and truly how off the cuff racist last season was towards Garcelle and her first, you know, Garcelle had a lot of pressure. I mean, she really kickstarted the wave of like, I am the first X on a franchise, which Bravo is now parading around like, you know, look at us, we're progressive, we're casting black women on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, black women on Real Housewives of New York. And there was a lot of questions about, are they going to handle it well? Are they going to be able to stay above the fray, um, but still make good television? And I think in a lot of ways, Beverly Hills has failed in that regard. And so while I want to give kudos to the season for like being entertaining to watch in terms of, oh God, what's going to happen with Erica? I also had a moment this last episode in Tahoe, well, the last series of episodes where, you know, Crystal was under siege by Sutton. And while Crystal held her own on TV, like what is the ethics of Bravo placing these women in these scenarios where they're going to have to fight tooth and nail against people with racist viewpoints? Like, are they paying them more? Is there equity on Mm. set for if things go too far? Are these women being given, you know, access to support networks or therapists? And like, those are the questions running through my mind. And again, Crystal and Garcelle, I don't want to devalue either of their involvements. Like this is something they chose to do. I don't want to infantilize their decisions, but I do think I think a lot about that more than I ever have. And um, it's made it a little hard to sit through certain episodes of Beverly Hills. Like, This Tahoe trip, um, Sutton's meltdown was really hard to sit through. I was like, even myself a seasoned queen, so to speak, in terms of watching (laughs) like meltdowns, I was like, I don't think we've ever peeled the layer this much back. And I don't know if Bravo can just 
put it all back and rearrange it and make us pretend like that never happened. Same with like what's really going on between Garcelle and Lisa Rinna um, and Kyle too, by um, association. And then you have Real Housewives of New York, where I think, again, you have this situation where the women have been thrust into something that Mm -hmm. they have never been in before. And while there are like real good conversations happening, I just don't know, like, is this sustainable for people, right? Because I feel like there's a breaking point for the women that have been brought in and the women who are entrenched in their bad faith beliefs. Like Ebony, I'm like, how long can Ebony stand to lecture these women about like the history of Sag Harbor and why you shouldn't call black women angry? Like all of these things, like, I just don't, I don't know how people are going to survive on that, right? Like these new cast members that have been cast for a very specific role. And so like, I think in a lot of my recent writing and criticism on housewives, um, because I like to call it that criticism because it makes me feel better (laughs) about it. My criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Like I've written a lot about Ebony's inclusion and contrasted with Leah, who last season was really posed as the, firebrand political voice and then you peel back those politics and it's like oh you just are like obsessed with jordan peterson and yeah, you listen to red scare too much yeah like you listen to yeah. red scare a couple of times and you don't like joe biden and everyone and, yeah. me, and you're like yeah you think you're you've got it down yeah it's very yeah and that's what i thought about leah last season like i think i wrote a Same. line um that made her kind of annoyed on social media but i had just said oh. you know she was hired for um her politics but those politics are really just a sanitized version of her housewives like painted up to look more modern like she thinks the same way the rest of these women do i would just call her a little more modern in those beliefs like they've been um renovated slightly and so then you have like yeah Le- uh, ebony and i think it's interesting that ebony and leah are having an alliance right now on screen because again, I Mm -hmm. wonder like how long can this last? Like it it really feels like New York is headed for catastrophe. I mean, Luann's meltdown in Sag Harbor leading up to Sonia Morgan's slow unraveling. I just like, I don't know. Again, I just, I think I worry too much. I'm like, (laughs) are my girls going to make it out alive on the other side? The answer's looking pretty grim. Like, yeah, it's it's so weird because I actually, I mean, I completely agree with you that in terms of like throwing these women of color into these situations and making them account for the naivety, stupidity, lack of awareness, bad faith politics. There's so many ways you could describe it, but to make up for those issues with the white women on the cast who not only are white women who've maybe just not like there are white women who have challenged these beliefs that but they're clearly white women who haven't and also they are established cast members on a show where it's a bit of a hazing for the new girl whoever she is before you throw in the fact that she might come from a totally different background and in some ways it's been fun to watch them eke out the conversation because not fun but like it's been surprisingly enriching because I just assume Ramona will be little Miss Microaggression and they go from there and yet actually it's been Luan and Ebony having to like you know have the conversation and then seeing as annoying as Heather has been, the Leah-Heather contrast has been an interesting study in sort of these two sides of a, of a liberal coin where there's the sort of like, I've read a lot of books and I know what your fragility is, but I'm also low-key really patronizing mixed with, I'm not like those annoying white people, but I don't have to question my own privilege either. Like it's been oddly illuminating, but it, you're right. I, it, much like the way Beverly Hills is, 
focus on certain small things right now. I don't know how you sustain that for a whole New York season. And they've all been like, it's a different season. There's only five of us who filmed in COVID. I'm like, okay, you're explaining an awful lot here, ladies. Like, what really went on this season? You know, I think, again, I I, I really do want to make this point because I think this this is actually the question people who don't watch The Housewives or read my stuff about The Housewives, but then also know about, like, my really leftist-leaning politics, ask me Mm -hmm. constantly, like how do you sit through this, right? Because like, you know, I am very much Miss Eat the Rich, but also I'm also Miss (laughs) I Love to Watch Real Housewives of New York City. And the way that I have balanced that and have, I guess, kind of made up for that in my brain is that like, I do think of the housewives as a cultural artifact that is a product of its time and very revealing of its time. Like, no matter how out of touch the people might be or how removed from the everyday person these women are, in many ways, the choices they make and the style of editing and the overall construction of A Real Housewife is very American and also very influenced by our modern times. And you can see expressions of everyday conversations playing out on screen. And for that, I think of it as... I don't want to call it important, but it's fascinating to look at. Like, I can't stop Bravo from airing The Real Housewives. And I watch most of it illegally. (laughs) But so so in, um, in in a lot of ways, I think of it more as like a cultural artifact I am obsessed with studying. Like you have historians who look at really bad periods in history. And again, I'm not a historian. I don't want to like overstate my importance, but like there is value in looking at a bad thing and trying to recognize it and understand it and reckon with it and figure out where it sits in the cultural like ecosystem. And so like, again, I think it is really fascinating, like you said, to watch these conversations about like race and Black Lives Matter and abolition like play out. Now, I don't think all of those words are necessarily going to be set on screen, but like the movements of these conversations in the greater culture are playing out on screen. And I think it is very illuminating to look at like what we often describe as like the liberal upper crust or like out of touch rich Republicans. Like I do actually think there's something of value in hearing what they have to say, maybe not allowing a platform. And I don't think Bravo should platform racists and people who have like virulently bad views. But I do think that there is, I guess, as a cultural commentator and critic, something to be really gleaned out of this. Um, Like those conversations that they're having with Ebony are not like, one-offs those are conversations that play out in their everyday lives and in the everyday Mm -hmm. lives of a lot of people and i find fascinating that like we're getting to document it on tv but the most surprising thing i just want to say and i'll give you a little bit of insider tea is that you know when you write about the housewives a lot that Mm -hmm. ecosystem is actually very small and so you meet people or you meet them or you hear things And I've never heard anything but good things about Sonia. Like, I think I am someone who is generally concerned about her well-being. And I have written about that more recently. Like, is this a healthy thing for her to do? But it's been nice on screen. Like, I did feel a little bit of pleasure to see her really hold her own in that conversation and say what you might see as the right answers. I was like, oh, yeah, that's my girl Sonia. Like. Yeah, don't get same. involved like like yeah. she really i think came in at the end and you can see even ebony was surprised like sonia was the last person she would have thought was an ally in that conversation and 
<laughs> like as someone who has heard things about a lot of these people, like it was just nice to see the gossip I've heard about Sonia uh, be true in a sense. Like, you know, everything anyone who has ever met her has to say is that, yeah, she might be a little delusional and out of touch, but she is a heart of absolute gold. And I think you can see that in this most recent season. So I do worry, like, what are they going to do without Sonia? I don't think she should be on the show as evidenced by the first couple episodes, but like, I don't think there's another person who can balance the like necessary heart. Like Dorinda used to do that. And then, you know, the the monster got Dorinda and like, yeah, the transformation uh, caused some irreparable damage there. That's, I mean, you know, it's interesting, this this stuff where Sonia kind of stuck up for Ebony and just, what I appreciate about how Sonia reacted in interviews, also I'm never sure, is it Sonia or Sonia? Because over here we would say Sonia, but then I can't I think if you're Luann, no, if you're yes. Luann, it's Sonia. Sonia. Yeah. Sonia. <laughs> I never know if it's like, am I saying it right or wrong? Because there's so no, many you're, names. It's whatever you choose to say is what Sonia's okay. name is. Yeah. <laughs> she probably feels the same. I uh, was kind of struck by, you know, between interview chair, confessional moments, and in the show itself, in, in situ or whatever the phrase is, she displayed, like, you had these two polar opposites in a way of Heather and Leah and their approach, which had a glean of something good in it, but also had stuff in it that didn't work. And then, obviously talking about race and talking about identity is actually not simple and it's not something you can just wrap up with a bow but I think there's a core of it where just listening and trying to do the right thing that actually is quite a clear it's it shouldn't be that hard or that difficult it's the starting point and there's something really like pure and like sweet about how Sonia went well we just have to listen and just not be obnoxious I was like thank you because I feel like I'm going crazy it's actually not that hard and like you the person who wailed about banks and checks last week are making the most sense out of any of these women (laughs) yeah that's the thing I think is really refreshing about like again in this what I have said in writing and in public is like I am going to follow these cast members lead in terms of like the newer additions, like Ebony and Crystal and Garcelle, like I'm going to follow their lead, right? Like if they're on these shows and they have chosen to stay and they have like publicly expressed wanting to be a part of this and wanting to work things out, like I will follow your lead. I might not agree that it is the best thing to do, but like I can't devalue that decision, right? Because like these are still real people on television and they can make their own choices. And so like watching Ebony really like sit through that conversation and at the end, Sonia being the only one to say, maybe it's not about us. Maybe we just have to listen to her and not be a Heather and talk (laughs) over her and tell her all the things you know, or be a Leah and be like wildly exasperated and just make it all about herself. Like Sonia was the only person in that conversation. Just be like, I'm just going to sit here and listen to what Ebony has to say and it will follow Ebony's lead. And so I think if that, I think if cast members are willing to play on those terms, then like, Bravo still has something here, but as we see on its sister show, Beverly Hills, like, I don't know if those women are willing to do that. I mean, like, Kyle was so affronted when Garcelle said, when you said I don't pay my bills, it spoke to a larger racist conversation and cultural trope about Black people in America dating back hundreds of years now. Like, Mm -hmm. Kyle was just like, 
one, shocked and almost disgusted that Garcelle would even bring that up around her, right? Because it's like, they don't want to have anything to do with that conversation and they don't want it on their TV show. Is the sense that I got, like those more staid housewives. I think Dorit has kind of said more like, you know, just listen to Garcelle. Like, maybe I don't agree with what she said, but like Kyle and Lisa and Erica have all kind of seemed very like against that conversation happening around them. And so watching Sutton really rail into Crystal, I mean, kudos to Crystal. And I hope Bravo pays her millions of dollars for having to put up <laughs> with Sutton on that trip. But like, yeah, has like, her pay. I, yeah, like, I don't think that there's a resolution there, right? And when there's not a resolution, we see things like Leanne Locken on Dallas, where she just dug her heels in so much that Bravo had no choice but to get rid of her. And then you have Mm. someone like now more recently on that show, but like Brandy, you know, she also played the exact opposite card and it still didn't work. Right. Because she didn't Mm -hmm. actually change anything about her beliefs. And so like, I think we've seen experiments in this fail, like catastrophically on the real housewives. And so while I have hope for New York, I have less hope for Beverly Hills. I mean, between us, like, what does Beverly Hills look like next season, right? Like, Erica's yeah. Secrets, um, I don't know if you caught it, but I highly suggest all your listeners go watch The Housewives and The Hustler, which is the new ABC special, and then read my coverage of it on Jezebel.com. And again, like I say in that, it's not perfect. In a lot of ways, this story has been taken over by the scandalous and lurid details of it being a real housewife, which is something we saw with Teresa Judice. Like what yeah. really happened in the scam they were running was lost in the fact that it was Teresa. And so like mm-hmm. when you ask people what Teresa went to prison for or what Joe went to prison for, people usually just tell you like, oh, it was something with money, right? Like I fear that the story is becoming that with Erica Jane and in a large way, Jen Shaw, which is again, you see this inclusion of like scandal and intrigue and glamor overtaking what is like an actual crime that has affected real people. Um, yeah. But the, the special does also have interviews with people who were affected directly by Tom, like his former clients and people who received mm-hmm. settlements that never got paid those settlements. Um, but if you're going in looking for stuff about Erica, most notably, not a single confidant or former associate or any one of Erica's participated. And I wrote this in there and I will say it again here. I really think it speaks to the fact that Bravo allegedly has a really tight grip over its stars. And so they're not going to let them go over to ABC and, you know, spill the beans about Erica. But, you know, when all of this plays out and the accusations in it are legitimately horrifying, like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, um, you know, graphic imagery due to some of the accidents people experienced and why they went to Tom and the way that they've been taken advantage of is really harrowing and just Mm -hmm. like sickening almost like I had a pit in my stomach the whole time but um you know after that all comes to light and all of her co-stars see it and Bravo executives see it and the public understands it right like can she come back for a second season I mean there's now a legal investigation and probe into her the federal offices have you know her number (laughs) like they are looking into her and so i don't know if beverly hills can bring her back but then what are we left with sutton crystal lisa dorit and garcelle i mean i'll watch them but i don't think they want to make a tv show together either and so i do worry that we're going to have another orange county situation right like how did bravo come back from the last season well they didn't 
they're like, we're going on hiatus until we can figure something else out. So I do, I do wonder, I mean, I'm very curious again, it speaks to my inquisitive and almost uh, voyeuristic interest in these people's lives. Like, what the next thing looks like but yeah I'm, I'm curious to know what do you think like do you think that these systems can sustain themselves at bravo like do you think there's hope for atlanta or orange county i don't know if you have caught up on more recent seasons of those i think a glance i think a huge part of it too is like and i was saying this to a friend recently he was just like oh i'm not really feeling new york like just in terms of the number of people like i think covid has done a number on so many shows like the thing about it like i think that what you mentioned earlier and i think you're right there's a real sense from the fan base this year that atlanta hit a bit of a wall and i think the reason viewers felt like that was atlanta used to be the show where there was so much story and these dynamic witty women moving through story and not holding grudges about things they'd say so that so much would go down in one season in Atlanta and for the first time you felt like oh we're stuck on Bolo because nothing else has happened whereas if that was Beverly Hills we'd accept it to a point I think Atlanta will be fine I think OC could have a little bit of a return to form because their ratings actually weren't bad last year which is the crazy part yeah so I think it was the optics of those ratings yeah was what yeah worried bravo and again i think i think there's hope like i don't want to say that we're in a dark time for the housewives because (laughs) you had jersey which was in a really bad place the last couple of seasons i mean i watched because i feel like jersey's my comfort show like that's the show i go back to and i'm like they had a really rough couple seasons after the Teresa drama like exploded in their faces and then this season was really a return to form. I was like, there's storylines. I mean, they fixated yeah. a lot on the Jackie stuff, which it was very tiring when Bravo does that, when they have the one big thing and they're just going to ram you with it all season long. But I was really shocked at how much they actually got and how much of it was actually engaging to me. And I have a lot of high hopes for Potomac too. I think that Potomac has shown that while these women might not have as much money or status, they actually have real lives and they're willing to tell us all about it. I mean, like the access that Candace has given us into her life. Like, yeah, I'm shocked at like how open she's willing to be with her neuroses. Like you have, Mm. I mean, you have people like Giselle and Karen who really don't let people in at all, but then you have Ashley and previously Monique, right? Who were just like, my life is an open book. So I think that there's still storylines to tell there. I don't know if there's any storylines on Dallas and I am very worried for Real Housewives of Salt Lake City because more than any other Bravo show, it aired in quarantine and was explosively popular because of it. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if the cast is going to come back from the hiatus like armed and ready in full housewives <laughs> attire right like like we're gonna see him showing up in like more fendi and chanel than ever before <laughs> like no, like I'm, I'm excited to see what they have i think again i'll watch because of the jen shaw angle but aside from them like i am interested to see how the rest of the cast reacts but again like you also have shows like you know real housewives of orange county where like bravo just doesn't know what it's gonna do and i think I would be really shocked if Atlanta came back and looked the exact same as it did this season. I just don't think that Bravo is going to do it. And so I'm worried, like, who are they going to get? I feel like they have cast every single person in Atlanta on that show by this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, it, like, I mean, it's that cliche, isn't it, of it's very hard. Once the bigger shows become longer in the tooth, it's very hard to bring a new person in because, A, we just have years of history with the other women, and B, it's like, 
like are, are they going to be that dynamic off the cuff so it's just I mean there's rumours of like one like previous cast member of one newbie which could work but yeah I I mean the thing is Atlanta like the women are always so fun and there's a playfulness yeah. that they have that makes me come back but there's also a standard they've set for themselves that is so above the other shows where I'm like, oh, you guys have to deliver such crazy drama to, like, compete with yourself. Like, their only competition is themselves, really. That's the irony about Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's also this thing of a lot of shows now is, like, Bravo has set fan expectations so high that we've seen them get increasingly esoteric in their production and storyline decisions. Like, like, we have just seen them try to raise the bar with clever editing and fail and we've also seen them just cast i mean alleged rumor on the street that people probably knew about jen shaw before she got cast like i'm not saying producers but um definitely people in salt lake city right like like i can see them saying like huh there's this problematic figure in a social scene let's cast her and see what happens like i'm not saying that that was what they did bravo if you're listening please don't come for me but you know (laughs) i can see them going to that extreme just to like hype up the base right because we expect such gargantuan levels of drama i mean the fact that real housewives of new york was able to top tom and luann's downfall is still to me pretty shocking like i thought that that was the end of reality tv as we knew it because it was like how is it going to get better than this not better i guess those people suffered but you know (laughs) but they they kept the story going and for that we're grateful something i love about your writing for jezebel is you talk about fashion so you you'll write about red carpet stuff you wrote a really beautiful piece recently about Christopher John Rogers collection and how you talk in this beautiful meditation on transness and you know your own hopes and dreams it was really powerful and you've also written about fashion in the housewives context there's two recent examples I wanted to ask you about that I thought were very interesting the first I want to get into because I've seen this I saw this getting a lot of love on social media and I was kind of fascinated by it because it's it sort of feels like a throwback to the 2000s for me in a way, but the <laughs> cast of Housewives of Potomac did a shoot with Telfar and the designer from yes. Telfar. And I think it's for In Style. I know you wrote about it. Can you talk a bit about that collaboration and like, does it have any significance for Housewives or for Housewives and, and the fashion world? Yeah. So um, I think to be clear, like I get I, the Potomac collaboration, you're right, was with Telfar and Uggs. Telfar is... Uggs, I, yes. Yeah. Was is a Thank legendary you. New York designer at this point. I think it's safe for me to call Telfar Clemens legendary. Um, mm-hmm. He is the genius behind the now like eponymous Telfar bag that just yeah. about everyone, including myself, loves and has. Um, <laughs> although I think I got lucky because I got mine when they were still pretty cheap. I think my bag was like $100 from this site and now mm-hmm. it's like 250 right? So I wow. think that price jump speaks to how popular Telfar is. Um, and so that collaboration is major in the sense that you know we have a cast of people and I love the Potomac women so I do not mean this derisively but a cast who is not as famous as the rest of their castmates yeah um largely do I think in fact to racism within like housewives viewers like you people give I think a lot more grace in viewership to like all white franchises than they do Atlanta and I think that Mm -hmm. um there is a segregation in viewers that I think a lot of people who live in the housewives ecosystem don't recognize a lot of the time and so this was major because it was I think a cast that is not as well known they are not household names like people don't know ashley darby the same way that they might know like anini leaks or a luann or yeah. a bethany so like in that sense it was 
wild to me that Telfar chose them, but also pretty, I think, almost expected. I mean, you have Telfar who has made appearances on, like I mentioned, The Real Housewives of New York. Um, he's a friend of Sonia Morgan. And Sonia Morgan actually was the first housewife to model the Telfar bag. Yes. Um, those which is of her. She looked amazing. Those yeah. photos. I mean, come on, right? Like you can yeah. see hints of Sonia Morgan as she once was in those photographs. Yes. yes. Um, like the, the, like, you know, billionaire's wife, Sonia is on full display. I highly recommend everyone just Google Sonia Morgan Telfar and yes. people who watch Real Housewives of New York will remember the, pretty wild birthday party. I think it was a birthday that Sonia had where you have Telfar sitting in the middle of all of these women and Bethany, Dorinda, Luann, and Ramona are all arguing across oh, from yes. them. I forgot that he was <laughs> and, in that scene. Yeah. Yes, Yeah, Jesus. remember it was the drag queen party that they yeah. had at that nightclub and you have this iconic shot of Telfar just sitting there like <laughs> yeah. just living for the fact that an iconic <laughs> New York scene is playing out around him. And he's um, in the scene. Yeah. yeah, he's in it. Like, And then Sonia went on to truck around a lot of scenes in later seasons with her Telfar bag. So, you know, there is a history of Telfar and the Housewives. But I also think this collaboration is major because to me as a fashion historian, I look at it and I see a lot of hints of like, now I don't know if this stuff, um, you know, translated across the pond, so to speak, but hmm. back in the America in like the early 2000s, you had brands like Ed Hardy was a big one. And you had like a lot of reality stars like Paris Hilton or, you know, people who were on Bad Girls Club or just like, yes. you know, people who were famous for being famous and on TV and not necessarily like celebrities modeling these like, I don't want to call them like back then, I think you would call them trashy brands. Like I think it's okay to call Ed Hardy trashy in the year of our Lord 2021. I'm not calling yeah. <laughs> Telfar trashy, but it was these brands that lived in the American conscience who were worn exclusively in ads and on you know, the streets of LA and New York by like trashy quote unquote reality TV stars. And so mm -hmm. to me, this is kind of a callback, right? Because not only is it Telfar, it's Uggs, which again was like <laughs> the only shoe people like Snooki used to wear in 2007, yeah. 2008. Yeah. And so to me, it almost seems like a genius marketing move and very savvy on Telfar's part because I see it as that callback to the old days of like mainstream fashion and reality TV stars play into mainstream fashion. I wrote another thing about this a little bit about um, TikTok and the thrifting generation and Depop mm -hmm. generation as we call them now in fashion and about how a lot of those brands now are coming back. You're seeing like, people want to wear like vintage Von Dutch hats and like vintage. Oh my God. Um, and so I think that there's a market for this. Maybe not like, I don't see myself going out and buying an Uggs cozy. Uh, but I can see certain people looking at that and feeling like it's either familiar or aspirational because again, those brands in the two thousands, even though Snooki was wearing them, were still wildly successful. And so while I don't think that this is going to like move a lot of product, I do think that it is savvy and almost a little wink, wink, nod, nod from Telfar. Like this is the new generation of reality TV stars and they are wearing my clothes. 
And I just think that's great. I just love that. Like as just a product of its time, I love that. And I think Telfar is a genius. I, if you can't tell, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> yeah. It's like, she knows her stuff. Uh, but it's fun too, I think, because it's almost like he was saying, you know, I'm a Housewives fan and these are the Housewives I've chosen because they're a little bit underrated and they kind of like, the those who know, know, but I want to give these women their flowers. Even yes. the way, you know, he's turned up on Wendy Williams and Wendy has like, shouting them out and like you know Wendy Williams is a pop culture icon but she's not yeah. I think of late she's been styled you know in a more directional and specific way but like she's also not someone who is the go-to for some people in fashion so he's kind of challenging snobbery and like lifting up people that he's into which I think yeah. is sort of fun I think one thing that's genius about Telfar also and again we have more designers like Christopher John Rogers and stuff um, who yeah. have really lifted up black celebrities and black reality television stars and influencers by their now like inclusion in the mainstream fashion space. Um, the ad campaigns they choose, the models they choose, even down to like who is wearing the clothes on the actual site are all um, very specific, especially on Telfar's part. And so I do think, like you said, it was an intentional choice to choose these women in particular, right? Like I think especially as like a group of housewives, they don't get the flowers that they're deserved. And so, yeah, again, I think that's why I call it almost genius because it's in one way a cosign of Potomac as a franchise and as a legitimate cultural force, but also just a throwback to a really fun time in fashion marketing that I think a more self-serious fashion environment we live in has lost in a lot of ways. So yeah, again, I think it's I think it's genius. And again, I mean, the clothes look comfortable. If Telfar wants to send me one of their <laughs> shoes for a review, I would not say no to that. Please, we deserve the write-up on Jezebel. If you're listening, guys, send them over. Um, <laughs> on that, on the fashion thing, kind of in a different vein, but yeah. one that you wrote about and I just thought was so interesting because I'm like not quote-unquote a fashion person, but I enjoy fashion writing. I thought this was so interesting. You wrote about how this season on Beverly Hills, Dorit is rocking this Vivian Westwood corset that you mentioned yes. sort of like an archive piece that has had this moment with the Kardashians and influencers, uh, which of course is a realm that Dorit is adjacent to as a, as a housewife of Beverly Hills. A realm that Dorit desperately wants to be included. In, <laughs> right. I, I was trying to be polite. It's like a realm <laughs> that she's walking by every so often. Um, so can you tell me about that piece and like, like and Dorit wearing it and the significance of it? And I have to ask as well, because I don't know much about this piece myself, but I notice a lot of the comments, and I know comments on blogs are a pain in the ass, so maybe they're just talking, <laughs> talking shit, but there's a lot of, well, that's actually fake, John. It's clearly not real. So, like, what did you make of that conversation as well? So I actually want to start with that first because <laughs> yeah. um, the thing that I find that you have to accept in writing is that you can... Like, you know, as writers, I think that people think that especially as like, even as people who cover lowbrow stuff like, you know, fashion and reality TV, um, people expect us to just be able to say whatever we want. And a lot of times we can't because we don't have either one proof of it or people are litigious. And so I did yeah. see those comments and I would tell those people to read between the lines of what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Yes, that's what I had a uh, feeling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because what I did not say was that it was the exact piece. I just said it looked very similar to a piece. But again, yes. again, not uh, Dorit. I'm very sorry if you're listening. Um, <laughs> Joan, Joan, it's actually real. 
Oh, my jacket got some me. Oh, I like that you. I like that you went for her continental accent with that one. I'm I'm such a citizen of the world. You know, I've, I've been in every country. It's like we got it, Dorit. We got it. So, uh, for your viewers, though, um, that garment that she has seen in her confessional, she kind of has like a gold pin in her hair. She has it's like the Greek goddess waves. It's a corset um, with the painting. Um, the exact name of the guy is I am not a french historian so if i butcher this pronunciation please <laughs> execute me in the public square um i believe it is francois boucher and it is mm-hmm. daphne and chloe which is uh based on an ancient greek story of the same name by longus and it was in the second century ad and it was later the inspiration for the princess bride the story was from the second century ad and that story was made into this painting and then later that story also became the basis for the princess bride so it does have like a cultural mm-hmm. significance that goes overlooked um and it specifically was a corset from vivian westwood's 1990-1991 collection the portrait collection which featured a lot of similar excerpts from paintings plastered over really tight corseting and um you know kind of materials that you might see in those paintings like she wanted to evoke that but make it Mm -hmm. mainstream which is i think a lot of what vivian westwood does anyways um i'm not as acquainted on like british colonial history and also just like the years before that as i might as i probably should be but um it definitely evokes like classic british portraiture reimagined through a punk aesthetic is what i would Mm -hmm. describe that collection as and so um the specific corset is interesting in the fact that it is definitely um an a piece of fashion history that if you're in like the know you could see that piece and immediately say oh that's that vivian westwood corset it's in museums it has been worn now more recently by a bunch of influencers and kardashians and whatnot so it does have a more recent cultural history as well although beforehand you know people could just see that if you're in the fashion world and like immediately know it was vivian westwood right so it is like a corset Mm -hmm. um that exists in like the popular imagination i'd say and so it was really interesting to see her wear it and you could actually see her wear it last year on instagram she posted a preview of her in it and that's when it first caught my eye i was like wait a minute why is she wearing the daphne and chloe corset that's weird that she got her hands on that um mm-hmm. and again it's why i would tell everyone to read between the lines <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that really interested me in that um and like you kind of mentioned like I think of Dorit as like the modern Vivian Westwood woman. Um, there is like a construction and farce to Vivian Westwood's designs and uh, a hint of almost like playful irony that I think is present in the kind of person that Dorit tries to show herself as on TV. Like the one thing I tell everyone who likes the housewives or gets into the housewives or has never heard of them is that like, a lot of people either outright believe who these people are on TV or they distrust it. I think a big person that everyone distrusts is Bethany, right? Like she can't really be that like, you know, girl boss in real life. I bet she's a huge word. I'm not going to say to describe her right now, but like, you know, I think like uh, there's housewives who come off either really genuine or really fake. Um, and Dorit comes off really fake, but I find the kind of person that people choose to be, just as indicative of who they really are as who they might be when the cameras are down. Like 
Mm-hmm. Dorit is making choices in front of us, and those choices are really illuminating, I find. And so I thought I was most interested in the corset just because it almost represents like, a, it's like a symbol of who Dorit really is, right? Is it real? Is it not real? It's from this designer who pulls from a lot of influences in British aristocracy, which I think we can see Dorit does as well, as much as her accent portrays, tries to pretend yes, it's not. Like, yes. um, and so I think I wrote, and I'll just read this really quick because I think this sums up better than me rambling anymore. But mm-hmm. I said, the key, however, is always in the farce of Dorit's presentation. There is no Dorit Kemsley underneath, as there is no Vivian Westwood woman. She, like Westwood's designs, is a sum of her parts, dependent on each other to make the whole, lest they crumble into a pile of silk and gold. Um, and again, I think that's where I would tell people, read between the lines of what I'm saying <laughs> on whether or not that corset is real or not. I think it's pretty obvious from photos, but, you know, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about run-ins and like encounters you may have had with Real Housewives, like either in real life for interviews, even maybe via social media. Have you had any and how have those experiences been for you? I have met one Real Housewife in real life and then I have had a really strange interview with another one. So I'll tell you both stories. I met Gretchen Rossi when I was 13 years old. My school had fundraised. I was in the Japanese club at school and San Francisco has a really iconic Japan town. And so the anime club, I guess you could call it fundraised to go take a bus trip to um, San Francisco, Japan town. We're in San Francisco. It was like my very first time I was 13 and I <laughs> was in um, Union Square, which is like the Times Square of San Francisco. It's not like one to one, but but in terms of like what's there, um, it's like mm-hmm. the it's like the not fashion, the commerce district. And so um, we were there and it was Christmas time and they had the big Christmas lights up. And my friend and I had broken away from the group because we wanted to go to the hot topic that was in the mall. And we were walking and um, Times Square is pretty interesting because you'll have like, you know, like some pretty like basic tourist trap, like I love San Francisco stores. And then there's like a Louis Vuitton. And so there's this Louis Vuitton. And as I'm walking out of it, I'm looking inside because, right, I've never been that close to fashion before in my life. And I'm looking inside and a woman is coming out of the doorway and I run into her and I stare at her for a second. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're Gretchen Rossi. And she just (laughs) dashes back inside and like all of a sudden, like she's like you can hear her like kind of waving to people in the store. And she like disappears. And my friend and I are standing there and we're like, oh, we should probably go. Like, I think she didn't want to be recognized. (laughs) Which again, let's be real, Miss Gresterin Rossi, you are not Beyonce. Like no one is walking around except like one at that point gay 13 year old recognizing you in San Francisco. And so we started walking around, but I was a little snoopy and, you know, camera phones were not something we had. Uh, You know, I just had a little like a phone with like a shitty camera. And I was like, I just want to get one photo of her. I don't care if it's across the street. I want evidence. (laughs) And so we're kind of camping out in a sunglasses hut and we're waiting and waiting and we don't see her. So we decide to keep walking. And I guess she must have used a back entrance because guess who runs into her right around the corner outside of Bloomingdale's? Me, again. And at that point she goes, are you following me? (laughs) 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 Felt like a little attacked. And... 
I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. And I'm frozen, paralyzed, right? In fear. This is the first celebrity at that point. I mean, I thought of Gretchen Rossi like a celebrity. It's the first celebrity I've ever met in my life. And my friend who's with me is looking at me like, who is this person? And I'm like, Gretchen, I'm really sorry. I'm a huge fan. And I think that Tamara is such a bitch. And I'm so sorry they're being so mean to you. And I'm not joking, Connor. Her face lights up like a freaking Christmas tree. It is like every bad thought she had about me washed away in that instant. She starts showering me in love and affection. She's like, okay, this is patronizing, right? For your listeners, I am trans, but back in the day, you know, it was just a gay little child. Okay, she goes, yeah. So just imagine like this, like <laughs> 2009, I'm in like a chunky scarf with skinny jeans and like <laughs> a See, checkered. So yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? So I, um, so she goes, Oh my God, you're so adorable. And like, again, now I see that as patronizing, right? Like She was like, hello, little gay one. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so we started talking and like almost immediately, I recognized Slade with her, who at oh that point, gosh. remember, he was infamous because he had left Joe and gotten with another real housewife. And mm-hmm. so... Slade just butts into the conversation and starts lecturing me at 13 years old about how evil Tamara is and how awful Vicky is. And he was telling me about like a text thread that Vicky was like on that day. And like, he was saying like all this stuff about like where she lived and how bad her house looked inside. And I was like, okay, (laughs) In retrospect, it's very weird that an adult man wants to invite a 13-year-old into his private life like this. But at the time, I mean, I was living it. And I think it was 2000, I was 14. Still, I think the point stands. Yeah, so then we talk and she buys me a coffee from a stand and tells me she hopes she has, I have a fabulous day. That's what I remember it clear as day. She said, fabulous. And then we went on our merry way. And I was beaming. There's a photo of this encounter. It is the most mortifying thing to look at, but I haven't been able to find it in a couple years because again, for the, I don't know if we have any baby Gen Zs on this podcast, but for us elder Gen Zs, we used to not have iPhones. And so if you had photos, you had to send them to Facebook or MySpace or Tumblr. Yes. And a lot of those things just didn't translate to archiving them the way that you know an iCloud might these days and so it was lost Mm -hmm. time but it existed at one point and someday I'll be able to find (laughs) it but that was my one physical life encounter with a housewife Um, which again is so nuts I think she was there she said it was her vacation they had stopped filming and she was like on vacation in San Francisco but again like the chances of running into her on my one trip to San Francisco pretty nuts. And then, I mean, I lived in San Francisco for a few years as an adult and I never met any celebrities. So and then I, um, the one interview that I'd like to mention, because again, I wrote about it. So, uh, her secrets are mine to tell. I interviewed Luanne de la So for people who don't oh. know how these kinds of things work, 
um, a lot of the interviews that you read with your favorite celebrities are actually pitched to us by publicists. And mm. um, a lot of the times it's like if they have a movie coming out or if there's a new album or a book, um, a publicist that does not represent the celebrity, by the way, reaches out to me and says, hey, I have so-and-so, they're doing press for such-and-such, would you like to speak to them? I said, great. And they're like, great, let me put you in touch with their publicist. And then that publicist gets on the line and is like, okay, here's what you want to talk about with Luann or Mm -hmm. whoever. Um, And then, you know, don't talk about this and we'll set it up for 15 minutes at this time, call this number. Um, And usually it is not a direct line. Usually what it is is you call the publicist and then the publicist patches you over because the publicist wants to be able to end the call, right? I am a big Luann archivist fan voyeur i don't know what you would call me i don't necessarily (laughs) like her as a person but i'm fascinated by her and so i had all of these questions right like i've seen everything she's ever done i don't know if you remember this but um do you remember when she did the before they were housewives special did you guys get those yes that was amazing it was like a one-off kind of like VH1's behind the music, but for Housewives, but they yes. did, and they pitched it like this ongoing series, but they only did about Luann, and it was about her life pre Housewives and her time in Italy, and like it was actually really interesting. And I actually really interesting, yeah. Well, do you know what I mean? Like it could have been such a, a, a flop of a show, but it was such a fascinating format, and I wish they would do it again because I actually yeah. think there's a handful of Housewives where that could be a really cool thing. But I do remember that special, yeah, yeah, and so in it. Like I, the questions I had tailored were like deep cut questions, right? Because I've read a lot of interviews with the housewives and I wanted to like make this worthwhile to people, right? Because again, it is just like a real housewife promoting their cabaret. I needed, as I think at Jezebel, we always try and bring like a unique critical voice to the things Mm -hmm. that we do. And so I wanted to make this something more unique than just like a standard junket interview. And so I came up with questions like in her special, she talked about, this one dress that her mom made her to compete in her very first pageant and she won in it and won the trip to Italy. And that's like where her whole life started. And so like, Mm -hmm. I had questions like, do you still have that dress and stuff like that? And then obviously all the things about like, um, you're dating your new producer of the cabaret. What's that like? Like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And like, how have you been coping like a year out of prison? Cause at this point she was only out of prison. Let's, let's be real about what that was. She spent one night in jail. Let's not <laughs> let like, Luann. Time in the pokey. You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your time in the slammer. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just, I wanted to ask her about the Herman Munster shoes. Like I, I had it all right. So I get on the line and the post is like, okay, we're patching you through to Luann. She sounds exactly oh the same on the phone <gasps> as she does on TV. You know, just has that rich, smoky voice. I launch into my questions and immediately I'm like, hey, like, let's start it fun. Like, you know, I see that you um, have posted that you're in a new relationship with your producer of the cabaret. Like, how do you balance work and life? And immediately she goes, I am not here to talk about myself. I am here to talk about cabaret. And it was like... <laughs> Again, I'll say this. You really think that in those moments you're going to have something to say. But I had watched Luann on TV for so long that I expected an almost like a playfulness to her in the interview. And it was immediately like, nope, we are not doing that. And so I felt I was like a little like jolted. I was like, oh, my God. And I'm looking at my 
questions and I'm like, okay, cross that off, cross that off, cross that off, cross that off. And so I kind of sat there in awkward silence for like 15 minutes, not 15 minutes, sorry, 15 seconds. I was just like stunned. And I just, I think I just said, uh, okay. Um, well, (laughs) all right. And then I just was like, okay. And so then I asked her about the dress and she was like, I haven't thought about that dress in years. I don't even know who has it. Maybe my mom has it. And I just tried to salvage it from there. But like from that point, it was just like I had <laughs> crossed a line with Luann that I could never recover from. Like, And again, yeah. like I think people look at certain things that journalists say and do in interviews and they'll like, especially housewives fans, they get really defensive. Like, why do they think they can ask this person this question? Why are you going there? Like this feels invasive. And I think people don't really understand that. Like when your subject is someone who has opened up every aspect of their life and made themselves the product and then yeah. wants to be famous because of it, when they offer themselves to journalists, I always feel like it's fair game to say, well, let me ask you about your life. Like, I hate this, you know, kind of stonewalling that a certain reality television network often does with its stars because it's like, Luann, girl, like, we have watched every aspect of your life short of watching you take a shit. Like, I think it's fine. <laughs> that could be the season finale. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, I think, it's, I think it's understandable that journalists might ask you about your love life, right? Like, to that point, I, every, every day since, I'll think about that sometimes. And I'm just like, <laughs> man, doesn't she realize how much fun it is to just, like, let loose sometimes i mean this is her job like this is something she's chosen for herself and so i don't think it's like fair to say like i'm owed everything but if housewives are listening i would say that oftentimes interviewers do not have malicious intent and we are trying to do a job and oftentimes our job is to make you seem interesting and fun yeah so let us play with you i i will say though something about the well it's not a visual because she was just on the phone but i can really hear her saying like i'm not here to talk about myself i'm here to put cabaret like that's almost like a tagline that she would say <laughs> yeah and so I, I i was being really i wasn't annoyed like again this was over as soon as it began but because i was feeling very cheeky after and i knew i was going to send it to her and her publicist for not review <laughs> like celebrities don't get to tell us what we write but i do send it over just as like a courtesy like here's the thing you participated in yeah. um i made the headline Luann de Lesseps is only talking to me about cabaret and that was the headline because <laughs> <laughs> i was feeling a little cheeky i was like okay well <laughs> We weren't off the record when you said it, so I will be writing about your iconic line. So, you know, we you may have gotten a potential tagline from Luan in that interview, but I do love asking every guest this. I'm so curious what yours is going to be. What would your Real Housewives tagline be? Um, I think someone else has said it best. I think it was, okay, I might be crossing my wires here, but um, maybe it was Trixie Mattel on Lisa Vanderpump's Overserved, which was a hate watch to be sure. I think one Same. of the taglines yeah. she proposed was some may some say that I'm a bitch or maybe that was Gigi Gorgeous's. I think that would be mine too. Like some say that I'm a bitch and that would just be it. One line. Easy, <laughs> easy. Like, <laughs> I do think like 
Jezebel as a site is like so like primed for like use in a housewives pun related yeah. setup. You know, like that would definitely lend itself. Oh yeah, to, like, that would. Kind of... I think that would just be it because I mean, on my podcast, eating for free, I my tagline we had taglines at the beginning, and mine oh, was amazing. always "Hi, I'm Joan Summers, international emotional terrorist," and that was like how I described myself or local menace, like. <laughs> but yeah, so I I definitely describe myself as that as like a pop culture writer like my critical lens is bitchiness i would say and so yeah i would just say like some may say i'm a bitch and that would just be it i think it's Gigi gorgeous who said that on watch what happens live but it might have been trixie mattel who knows <laughs> and they're all iconic blonde queens and that's what's important here and another quick one i wanted to ask you is you're throwing a dinner party tomorrow you can have five people from housewives world Ooh. housewives friends of hangers on husbands peripheral people what five faces do you want around the table and why okay first off absolutely no questions asked sony morgan easy yeah. that was like mm-hmm. bam easy okay from there I want to talk to Sonia Morgan. I want to talk to Lisa Vanderpump. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to Kenya Moore. Ooh. I want to talk to, oh gosh, Karen Huger. And okay. I think I get one more. Um, yeah. For my final one, oh God, this is the hard one, I think. I think Alex McCord. I chose chaos oh, for oh. this lineup. Did yeah, you, you did. did. That? <laughs> that chaos. Or if I couldn't get Alex, Kelly Kaloran, Ben Simone. You, I thought you were going to suggest someone a little more like mellow. You're like, no, actually, let's go more chaos. <laughs> let's ramp up the stakes of this. Or, okay, and, and, and a hanger on who would show up uninvited would be, I think there's some, okay, Oh my God, I set up a joke and then I forgot what her name is. Marlo Hampton. Yeah, Marlo <laughs> wouldn't be invited, but she'd hear that others were invited and she'd show up and I'd make a, a last minute table setting. And in my professional, <laughs> I would bitch about how she had an RSVP. Oh, I love it. You're thinking of the show. That's the main thing. You're thinking of what the viewers want. <laughs> yeah, but again, I think those lineups are people who I want to hear from and think would make very interesting dinner party conversation. Actually, I have met Lisa Vanderpump too, now that I think about it. <gasps> oh my yes. God. Yes, I've actually met more of Vanderpump Rules people than I have met like actual housewives. But yeah, I met mm-hmm. Lisa. I didn't meet Lisa in the sense that I walked up and I told her my name, but I went to Pump one night because my podcast host and I, for our Patreon people, we did a Vanderpump Rules bar crawl where we went celebrity watching at all the bars <gasps> one night. And yeah. it was just like each, we recorded live in the in the, in the <gasps> restaurants too. I'll send you that because I think you'd like it. And I met yeah. Lisa and <laughs> she was having dinner at Pump and I, um, I waved to her and one of her people came over and said, hi, I saw you waving at Lisa. Um, can I ask just like a little about you? And I said, oh, hi, I'm Joan Summers. I'm a journalist with Jezebel. I'd love to talk to Lisa. And then a little bit later, one of the people at the restaurant escorted me out. 
like, well. they did tell me like you have to leave but the security guard was definitely like don't bother lisa stand somewhere else and so the funny thing was to be clear to everyone listening she had a line of west hollywood gays out the door where they were like kneeling and kissing her hand so i felt like i was like the least invasive of the people near her and then immediately after we went to tom tom and i met Jax, which was listeners he's as weird as he seems on television he Jesus. was with a oh bunch of God. people and they sat next to me and my friend and they're like, do you know who this is? And I look over and again, now I'm playing along, right? Like I'm in a, I'm in an acting scenario. I go, no, uh, no, I, we're first timers. We've never been to LA before. And oh, one of wow. his friends goes, he's very famous. Do you want a picture with him? And I go, oh no, I'm okay. And they go, no, no, no. Would you like a picture with him? And I was like, uh, okay. So there's a photo of me that I'll also send you of me wasted out of my mind and Jack, who's like glowing, right? Like bronzer, beat, highlighter, like yeah, must have eyeliner on, like snatched waist, like beaming. And then immediately after, he like just sat with us at our table and I was like, um, I. I didn't want this photo. And now it's like, you want me to know how famous you are. It was such a strange, it's such a strange thing. Every encounter I've had with the Vanderpump Rules people has been like similar levels of esoteric. Like, it's just very weird, weird people. I'm obsessed with the visual of you going, I'm Joan Summers from Jezebel. And there's like, I'd love to, love to speak to the, like thinking there'd be like ring lights and a camera brought up for a sit down, like Diane Sawyer moment. And they're like, get the fuck out. And that's iconic. drinks you don't tell you don't understand how sugary they are and how that masks the alcohol i'm thankfully sober now so i don't ever have to drink one of those ever again but it is (laughs) like a fruit punch with a whole bottle of tequila inside and so by the end of it you're really feeling it like i think i was Mm. sick for days from drinking at pump Oh my god, that is iconic. Oh, that's like I feel like I could do a whole spin-off podcast on people's run in with pump rules people. And um, we have talked a lot. I have had a blast. Before we wrap, where can people find your work at Jezebel? And I know there's episodes of podcasts from from last year and stuff people can check out as well. Yeah, so you can find me at my the easiest place to reach me is obviously at Jezebel.com. But if you want to know more about me um and my podcast Eating for Free, um we are planning a return soon. So subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, literally wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to our website, eatingforfree.com um, to get all the links and, you know, subscription things. Uh, if you're interested in pop culture and a communist, like explicitly eat the rich take on pop culture, uh, come to Eating for Free and hang out. We uh, normally would do two episodes a week. We have like 200 episodes in the archive, lots to watch wow. and listen through. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're bored, uh, if you're at your day job, which is what a lot of our listeners always tell us that they did, they're like, I worked at like a desk job where I got to listen to podcasts all day and I just like blew through you in one day. Like, um, that's the thing. Wow. So yeah, go there. But also if you just want to read more about my writing, you can just go to jessbell.com. Uh, I am under the celebrities tab. Perfect. And where can people follow you on social media as well? Yeah. Uh, follow me. I only have a Twitter, so you can all follow me at Laura Croft Barbie on Twitter. That is 
an excellent handle. I appreciate that you haven't copped out. Like, I copped out and got, like, it's my name handle, but that's badass. No, I, I used to do Joan Gossips, and it just didn't feel like me. And I've been, like, Laura Croft Barbie for, like, my entire life. And it just feels like a, a critical lens that I want to live in, right? Like, I'm equal parts Laura Croft and equal parts Barbie, and I'm here to do clothes, so... Yeah, go follow me there. I talk a lot of shit. Perfect. We'll put all those links in the show description as well. Listen, this has been a wild ride. I've enjoyed every second. Joan Summers, thank you very much for coming on Housewives and Me. Thank you. And I'm always down to come back anytime. This was an absolute pleasure. That was Joan Summers here on Housewives and Me. I'm so grateful Joan gave me so much of her time. That was one of those, we'll just do an hour. And then it kept going and I couldn't not let it go on because she was saying so much interesting stuff and her podcast Eating for Free is actually back because when we spoke again it was a few weeks ago and she was kind of like oh I'm not quite sure she'll be back soon and then like I think within a week they were back so I'll put links to where you can find the show in the show notes for this episode as well if you enjoy this episode and you're listening on Apple Podcasts I'd really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review it helps a lot with algorithms and getting the show out there etc you can follow the show on various podcasting platforms wherever you get your podcasts and you can find us on social media at Housewives of Me is where you'll find the show on Twitter and Instagram and I'm It's Connor Bean on those platforms as well. So until next time, stay safe. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you soon.